Children's Church, so if you are up through grade four, you are able to go to Children's Church. You can find your teacher right outside. Uh, those of us who are staying here, um, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of John 18 today. So where we are in the Gospel of John is that we have just finished the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And last week we talked about what does Jesus pray for us? What does Jesus long that we would have as the people of God? And it is unity, that we would be linked together, standing arm in arm, side by side, striving for the gospel, bringing to bear uh, the gospel message to a fallen world. And he knows that unity is often a difficult thing for us to attain. At the conclusion of that prayer, Jesus is now going to be arrested, and that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 18. Now, let me, let me uh, preface this with a little story, um, or introduce it in this way. Um, have you ever uh, uh, gone someplace and you've seen children running amok? I mean, just kind of like everywhere, right? And and you, and you almost have in your, your, your mind, like, um, whose children are these, right? And if you're a parent, um, and, and you know, you, you, you don't want to hear that, right? But although it is all about tone, right? It's all about tone. Because somebody might come up and say, whose children are these? And you're like, oh, those are my children. But when somebody says, whose children are these? Well, I usually go like, um, they're hers. <sighs> I don't know. I, I've been talking to her for a long time about these children. I don't, I don't know why they, they act the way they are. Or you, you might see, like, who, and really what, what the question that is being begged there, you know, regardless of where it is, I mean, um, even as uh, we have older children now and our children can certainly fly, I remember seeing the last time we flew five or six little kids um, that must have been between the ages of like maybe two and like six with their parents, and they just looked weary. And it's about that time where they, they, they start thinking like, well, maybe that leash thing was a good idea, you know, as they're everywhere. The, really what you're asking there is, who's in control? Like, who's responsible? Who's in control for everything that's going on right here? I mean, that, that is the question that we are asking. And, and really, that is the question that John wants to answer for us in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Because when we read it, um, when we read about the arrest of Jesus, it seems as if you, Judas, along with the high priest, along with the Roman soldiers, along with Caiaphas and Pilate, and all of them are in control of this. And yet John writes his version of the arrest of Jesus in such a way as to answer who is really in control. You see, what's going on in the midst of uh, this passage is that we see that God is in charge of all of this. That God is in control in the garden. And that God is conducting a symphony of salvation, albeit in the minor key. So let's, let's read the Word of God today. So when Jesus had spoken these words, again, from John 17, all the high priestly prayer... When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Would you pray with me? Father, when we think about John chapter 18, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds and hearts so that we might trust and believe that, that you are with us, that you are in charge of all things. Father, help me to, to explain this. And Father, I pray, Lord, for those who are listening, that you would work in us great faith and comfort and hope in Christ. Spirit, Holy Spirit, work in us. Show up. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we read it at first, when, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out of the disciples across the brook Kidron. So the idea for us is when Jesus leaves the, the walled city of Jerusalem, he goes down a little valley. There's a brook Kidron there, and he crosses this valley. Now, what's significant about this valley is that there was actually a drainage, um, a drainage pipe that would go from the temple all the way down to the brook Kidron. And so at this point, after they had slaughtered all the Passover animals, the brook Kidron was actually running, probably red with blood, as Jesus crossed crossed it, and then began to ascend just a short way up the, um, up the side of the valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John does not describe it as the Garden of Gethsemane, but we know that it is the Garden of Gethsemane uh, from other gospel accounts. And the garden that Jesus was actually going into was Gethsemane, which means place of crushing, the place of crushing. Now, the reason it was called the place of crushing was because it was an olive grove. And so at the olive grove is where they would crush the olives, and they would actually go through um, three different um, crushings that would have at least three. There would be the olives that they would put in bags, and they would allow gravity to sort of take the oil out of the olives. And then after the olives have given up that first oil, then they would take them and they would crush the olives in a press to get the rest of the olive oil out. And then lastly, they would take the pits of the olive and actually grind the pits to get the final bit of olive oil out. Now, in a similar way, what we find is that in the garden, Jesus, uh, this garden of crushing, you know, and again, other gospel accounts talks about Jesus' travail, how he actually asks the Lord to take this cup from him. He actually um, cries tears of blood in the midst of this. And what we find is that, yes, this is a place of crushing for Jesus as well. 
Because we also see that when Caiaphas uh, takes Jesus later on, and we'll read about this later on, he actually takes and puts a bag over his face and soldiers punch him and say, who hit you? Who hit you? And then he goes to Pilate where he is flogged, and then he goes to the cross where the wrath of God is poured out upon him. So this place of crushing is an appropriate name, that it's a familiar place, and it's um, ripe with symbolism throughout this garden. Now again, one of the things that John does in the very beginning of John, you know, in the beginning was the Word, you know, and the Word was with God. We see that John often harkens back to Genesis. But in this particular passage, in John chapter 18, he's also um, saying that, that this garden has great symbolism around it as well. And here's what I mean by that. You see, the first Adam began life in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. Christ, Jesus, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden as well. You see, in Eden, Adam sinned, but in this garden, the Savior overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell, and in Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself, but in Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, it was sheathed, meaning that, you know, the, there was the angels who would draw the sword to keep people out of Eden. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus actually tells Peter, no, sheath your sword. You don't understand what's going on. You see, this, this Garden of Gethsemane, this, this place where we find great crushing, as it were, is a place that we oftentimes must trod ourselves. So let me just jump right into application here. So we think about where Jesus is. We think about him in a familiar place. We think about his betrayal. We think about his trials. We think about his sufferings. All of those things Jesus underwent. And, and there's a cosmic um, question that Jesus answers. But there's also this aspect that all of us have times where we are in the garden of Gethsemane for ourselves. There are times in your life where you are feeling crushed, much like Jesus was feeling crushed. The, um, uh, one of the Puritans that I really appreciate, his name is Octavius Winslow, um, and he writes, we must in some degree tread the path he trod. He said, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief from Isaiah 53. And he says, Jesus' life was one of one continuous trial. From the moment he entered our world, he was, league, he was um, leagued with suffering. He identified himself with affliction in its almost endless forms. He seemed to have been born with a tear in his eye and with a shade of sadness on his brow. From the moment he touched the horizon of our earth, from that moment his sufferings commenced. He did not come to indulge in a life of tranquility and ease. He did not come to quaff the cup of earthly pleasures. He came to suffer. He came to bear sin's curse. He came to drain the deep cup of wrath. He came to weep to bleed, to die. Our Savior was a cross-bearing Savior. Our Lord was a suffering Lord. Is it to be expected that those who link their destinies with His, who avow themselves to be His followers and disciples, should walk in a dissimilar path from the Lord's? Even First Peter says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, 
leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. And what I, when I think about this, I think about the people that, um, that we pray for on a weekly basis, uh, the people that we have prayed for. Um, I think about many of you who are going through different trials. I mean, some, some of you um, are having a great day, and everything seems to be going really, really well for you. If that's the case, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But for many of you, some of you are very weary. Some of you are very anxious, um, anxious about tomorrow. Some of you um, have anger that you have to work out, um, anger about the past, frustration, all of those types of things. And, and some of those, um, those feelings that you have are coming up and welling up within you because of the trials that you're engaged in. So, so what do I do? What do we do um, in the midst of this? What, what do we think about? Um, and, I, and first, let me say, um, is that the, the first thing that we need to know in the midst of suffering and trials and difficulty is that God is with us, that he has not left us nor forsaken us. When I think about um, that particular verse, I, I think about Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. When it says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. And then he goes on to say, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, in, in, in the midst of the, the, the difficulties in whatever garden of Gethsemane or place of crushing that you are undergoing right now, I want you to know that God is with you. That if you are in Christ, that God is with you. And he even says, when you walk through the waters, when, when you go into hard places, when you experience difficult things, I will be with you. You see, Oftentimes, we're asking the question of why, but let me quote Ed Welch. He says, in the cross, we receive the knowledge of God, but its purpose is, is not to enable us to understand everything God does. Rather, its purpose is to move us closer to him, to fully trust him, even when, especially when, we don't have all the answers we desire. Scripture always takes the question, what is God doing and moves us toward deeper trust in him. Seldom are we given the answer to why. So what does that make us do? It makes us, when we are in the midst of trials and suffering, and we actually have the example of Jesus. Um, again, why did Jesus go to this particular place? Well, in the other gospel accounts, he actually went to this place to commune with his Father, to pray to the Lord God of heaven, and to commune with him. So in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of our own uncertainty, in the midst of the crushing that is going on, the question becomes, what do we do? And I think that the answer, certainly to that, is that we are called to pour out your heart before him in prayer. Your Psalm 62 verse 8 says, trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
We see this in the the midst of our own lives, and yet oftentimes, oftentimes, rather than prayerful faithfulness in the midst of suffering, I think that we opt for silence. You see, we, 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 rather than pray, we remain silent. You see, silence opts for independence over intimacy. Our silence, our lack of prayer, our lack of yearning to commune with the Lord, it is often the response of our dismay, our struggle, our calamity. Again, let me quote Ed Welch here, who says, the Psalms are a response to the Lord's implicit and enduring request. Speak to me about your fears, your doubts, your enemies, your feeling alone in the dark, your sins, your desires, your thanks, your praise. Speak to me about what is important to you. Sounds easy for some wise saints. It may be easy. He says, I so admire those who speak naturally to the Lord, often speaking out loud to him. Yet what they are doing is far from natural. What's natural is silence, fretting, scheming, binge-watching movies, playing one more video game, general dawdling, a distracted mind, and then more silence and more fretting. Speaking to the Lord is not natural for sinners. It is supernatural a gift from the Spirit and evidence of the Lord's closeness and power in our lives. Expect to encounter resistance along the way. And if your words to the Lord over the years have been few, simply get started. Lord, I want to talk to you about this. And just come to Him. When I I read that quote, I I, um, identify myself because I think about this when I think about, there's what we normally do. You know, we um, fret, scheme, distract, you know, binge watch movies, play, I don't play video games, you know, general dawdling, uh, distracted mind, and then more silence and more fretting. Do we see that in our own lives over and over again? Now, maybe you don't see all of those, you know, perpetuating themselves over and over again, but what he's saying is silence is not the answer. Silence is faithlessness, but prayer and coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, help me and knowing that the Lord is at hand. You know, again, we oftentimes memorize that passage in Philippians chapter, um, where if Ch- Philippians chapter four, do nothing out of, um, uh, and, and I'm sorry, do not be anxious about anything, uh, but in prayer and petition, present your request to God. But right before that, in Philippians chapter four, it says, the Lord is at hand, that he is near. So in the midst of the crushing of the garden, um, I would ask you, would you please pray and talk to him? Again, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, I love this section of Isaiah because it actually says, the Lord is ready to hear your prayer request. And he's actually speaking to a group of people who are rebellious to the Lord. Like they have not kept his commandments. They have done all, t- all kinds of terrible things. But listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 65. It says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in their vessels. 
He's basically saying, I have opened my arms wide to accept your prayers, to be in communion with you. Would you please come and lay your requests at my feet? Do that. Now, I think that's in terms of application, what we see. But the question is, if the Lord is at hand, is he actually able, is he powerful enough to actually do something. And this is where we go back to John chapter 18. This is a great story. So here's what we find in verse 2. So Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, which meant that the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, imagine um, every time they would see this place, this was a place, at least initially, of, of great comfort. Because it was a place where Jesus would actually be with his disciples, be in prayer, teach them how to pray, pray with them. It was, it was a wonderful place, and yet it became a place where Judas betrayed him. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, now that band is actually a cohort, a Roman cohort. So we're not talking about like two or three or four or five. We're talking probably in the neighborhood of, um, on the lower side of the estimate, somewhere between 200 and 300 um, soldiers, as well as officers and chief priests, officers from the chief priests. So this is not a small band. And if you are on the, the mountainside, the slope, and Jesus is there in the Mount of Olives, as he begins to see two to 300 people in the middle of the night with torches coming from the gate and going down the valley and coming up, he saw all that was going on. They didn't surprise him. He saw all of this, but Jesus, again, knew what was going on. So now you have two to 300 soldiers coming, and the question becomes, who's in charge? So is Judas in charge? Is, is Judas in charge? No. Are the Pharisees and the chief priests and the soldiers in charge? I'm sure that there was some soldier, that there was some tribune, you know, that thought that he was actually in charge of what was going on. And they were armed, and they were ready to take prisoner, not just Jesus, but they were probably going to take all of the disciples. Because why would you bring two to 300 people just to take one man? And so when they come, look at what Jesus does. Jesus, in, 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 a, in a place of authority, comes and he says to them, whom do you seek? Again, in, in verse four, it says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? He didn't shrink away from their question, he knew what was going on. He says, whom do you seek? And what's beautiful here is that he says, um, they, they said, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Now your English versions will say, I am he, but the Greek is actually ego eimi, which is I am. The he is just provided there so that our grammarians feel good about themselves, okay? What we find is that he is saying the I am. And throughout the Gospel of John, he says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. And he also says, before Abraham was, I am. So this is a very specific thing that Jesus is saying. And when he says, I am, he is using the covenant name of, of the Lord. And that's why we read Exodus chapter 3 today. When, when Moses is revealed, when, when God reveals to Moses his name, he says, Yahweh, I am that I am. So when Jesus says, I'm looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am. And look at what happens. He says, I am. And then Judas, who betrayed him, who was standing with them, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back 
and fell to the ground. Now, we're not talking about like, you know, wobbly toddlers who are in the garden. Like we're talking about like Navy SEAL type guys, okay? We're talking about guys who've been in war, who are battle-hardened veterans, who are armed and ready to take something from someone. And when Jesus says, I am, they fall to the ground. And what John is saying is that Jesus is actually in charge, that God is in charge of the arrest, that God is in charge of all that is happening in the garden. Brothers and sisters, that is extremely comforting to not only know that that the Lord God of heaven is near, but that he is able and powerful enough and omnipotent to handle and be in control of all things. To know that you're a child of God and to know that the promises of God will always be carried forward, that there is no person or government or event that can thwart God and all that he does, it brings us tremendous comfort. But it also makes us ask the question, who is this Jesus? Um, when we think about um, who this is, you know, that, that would come and, you know, he causes all of these, these men to fall down. And, he's, and he says to them, you know, is he like no other? You know, Tim Keller um, said this regarding um, this particular passage. He said, you know, every other founder of a religion was a prophet or sage. And they would tell people, live this way, follow this pattern. But Jesus says, I am. And he reveals that he is the uncreated, limitless God of the universe. And he will not share his glory with another. (laughs) He said this uh, regarding this passage. He said, if you have a mild response to Jesus, then you don't know what he says and what he claims to be. If to tepidly respond to Jesus means that you don't know what he says or what implications he commands. See, when Jesus says, I am, and they fall down. Now, now why does he knock them down? I think there are two reasons. The first of which I've been talking about. I think he wants to show them that he goes willingly and that it is his father's plan. And now again, we read about this in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, where he says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Again, I'm citing John chapter 10. Jesus the whole time is saying, I willingly am laying my life down. Nobody is in charge of me. But there's a second reason, I think, besides just showing the power and the plan of God, I think he also says this to rescue the disciples. Because I think when when you send two to three hundred of a Roman cohort out, you're not seeking to just take one. I think you're seeking to take several. And when Jesus asks them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And then he asks again, when Jesus said, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And I, I kind of wonder at times, like, did you say it with as much confidence the second time? 
as you said it the first time? And we, I, we don't know. But he says to them, I am he. Now this time he doesn't knock them down, which by the way, the first time when he knocked them down was a, was a sign of great grace in their lives because he could have just extinguished all of their lives like that. And so just knocking them down was grace in their lives. But the second time he says, I am he, and then he gives a command. So if you seek me, let these men go. And again, he says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And we see this in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. So this idea was the fulfillment of what Jesus had just prayed in John chapter 17, where he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." See, Jesus is actually fulfilling what he had already said. I'm not going to lose any of these disciples. And so what he actually says is, when you ask Jesus questions, he begins to ask you questions. And he says, no, no, no. I'm actually in charge here. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth? Then let these men go. Now, all of the disciples are allowed to leave. Now, what's interesting, though, is that, and this is a good illustration, um, Peter, full of courage and just ignorance at this point. So then Simon Peter, in verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, I don't know where he got a sword, he's probably hiding it from Jesus, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, we either have to think, and again, in an act of boldness against two to three hundred Peter with one sword thinks, so either he is so adept at wielding the sword that he cuts off the ear of the high priest, or he is so inept that he actually misses or it slides off the helmet, comes down and slices off the ear. And at this point, I kind of wonder, and I'm taking the liberty here, I kind of wonder if Jesus just kind of looks at him and goes, I guess you can take that one. He's been a problem the whole time. He's always speaking out when he shouldn't. One moment, he's speaking words of grace. The next moment, I've got to call him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, back and forth. But he has to kind of shoot. And what he does is, and we don't read about this in John, we read about it in, at the end of Luke's account of this, is that Jesus actually touched the servant Malchus and restored his ear. Now, again, if you're a Roman soldier and you're up close on this, you're like, you've already been knocked down. You, you, now, Peter, one of his disciples, has drawn his sword, which means you probably also all unsheath your sword because you're like, we're going to fight now. And then he cuts off an ear, and then Jesus heals it, and you're just looking around going, what are we doing? But Peter, who will be restored, I, I, again, I think Peter's failure gives us great grace that it might actually um, be us who are sometimes bold and ignorant, um, and we do things that we think that the Lord needs, but he's like, I've got a plan, Peter. Because in verse 11, he actually says, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And what he's saying to Peter is, Peter, you don't get it. I've been talking to you for three years now, and I've, and I've revealed myself to you don't you know that I actually have to take the wrath of God on your behalf? And he uses this phrase, the cup. 
he uses this phrase, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, when we think about that phrase, that phrase is, is ripe with meaning. And there's three different ways we can think about that phrase. The first, when we think about cup, just like a normal cup, like a cup that Joseph hid in the grain um, sacks of his brother Benjamin, um, just a regular cup, you know. The second is this, we think of the cup of blessing. We think about this from Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We think about that uh, with regard to Psalm 116, um, verse 13, where it's talking about the cup of salvation, the cup of blessing or the cup of salvation. But the way that Jesus is using this term is not uh, a regular cup, nor the the cup of blessing or salvation. Rather, he is using it in this term. See, the, the cup is a cup of judgment. It is symbolic of God's hatred of sin, which all the evildoers will drink. We read about this cup, and there's 15 places, 15 times in the Old Testament that God speaks about the cup of judgment or the cup of his wrath. Let me give you just two. In Psalm chapter 75, verses 7 and 8, it says this, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So it's this idea of of drinking the wrath of God all the way down. In Isaiah chapter 51, verses 17 through 20, um, speaking to Jerusalem, he says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. This, this full wrath of the Lord is, is what we see in Isaiah 51. We see it again in Jeremiah. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it among the prophets who are saying, because of your wickedness and your sinfulness and your transgression of the laws, the wrath of God will befall all those who transgress the law of God. And what we find is that when Jesus says to Peter, I will drink the cup, that was God's plan of salvation for me. You see, when we talk about the cup, we think about the righteousness and the holiness of God. And the righteousness and holiness of God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so when Jesus says, I will become sin, I will drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath and all the penalty of sin. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the deal. Like, every sin that you ever commit even the sins that you're committing right now in your mind have to be punished by God, or he's not righteous, he's not holy. And what Jesus says is, I will take the penalty for your sins. When he goes to the cross, he takes all the penalty for sins upon himself. That is the crushing the ultimate crushing that caused the Lord of the universe to shed tears of blood in the garden of crushing. And if we believe and trust in him, we who believe and have faith do not ever have to take that cup, but rather we get to take the cup of salvation. Again, Psalm um, 116, 
verse 13 says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Now, we are able to do that because of Jesus going to the cross for us. See, there's a garden, a garden which reverses, a word which prostrates the men against God, and a cup meant to be drained on our behalf. A garden, a word, and a cup. And all of that is happening so that we might be saved and reconciled and adopted and sanctified within the kingdom of God. And when I think about communion in this way, I think about this cup of salvation. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, I re- For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Do this as often. Do this as often as you remember me. This is the new covenant. This cup that we receive, brothers and sisters, is not the cup of judgment, but it is the cup of salvation. And as we come and we think about the body given and the blood shed, we know that we are reconciled to God the Father at a high cost. So as you come today, come with joy in your hearts, gratitude overflowing because of all that Jesus has done for you and for me. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would set apart this bread and this juice, Father, this fruit of the vine, that we might understand that only in Christ are we saved. And Father, that these are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And Father, we get to commune with you through these elements. That Father, you have given us these things to remind us of the gospel, to remind us that we get to receive the cup of salvation, not the cup of wrath. Father, thank you that Jesus drank to the dregs the cup of your wrath on our behalf. Thank you that you are holy and righteous. Thank you that you save us to the uttermost in Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that in the midst of this, that you would build our faith, that you would cause us to believe all the more, and that you would make us into the people that you have called us to be. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.